Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. I am in my backyard, joined tonight by Mike, as we are now recording our fourth installment in our Winging It series on church history. Um, We've done one previous series. If you haven't checked it out yet, I'd encourage you to do so on the Divine Service as we walk through the Western Rite. And now we are walking through church history, and this is definitely a survey. We're not hitting uh, every little bump along the road, um, but kind of a grand view. And to help us with that, we've been using uh, very loosely um, the book by Mark Knoll, Turning Points, Decisive Moments in the History of the Church, to kind of give us some of the major themes that we will hit upon. And the one we are now making our way to today, uh, having made our way through Nicaea, is what Nolan entitles the monastic rescue of the church and then the subtitle Benedict's Rule. And we might take a little bit of liberty here to get a little bit more at um, monasticism as a thing more comprehensively, um, its role, its purpose. Uh, But we will talk a little bit about the rule as well. But we've uh, made our way through the early days of the church where you have a church that at first was a very Jewish church in its demographics and becomes increasingly Gentile. Um, We've had this mission impulse as the church begins to look um, outside of Israel more and more, uh, and Paul and Barnabas and others take the gospel abroad. We've seen as the church was uh, persecuted, oftentimes um, in quick bursts. This wasn't necessarily a constant thing everywhere, but in certain locations, intense bursts of persecution that would break out um, to Christianity becoming a legal religion and, and in some ways even a favored religion by the emperor Constantine. Uh, that brought with it some blessings and curses, though. Um, the church was able to kind of come out from the underground in some places. Uh, it had uh, now some official buildings. Um, we see the rise of vestments as clergy are able to be more recognizable in society. Um, the liturgy starts to be solidified, and we really didn't talk about that maybe as much as we could have. Um, but there's also debates that break out about uh, who Christ is, um, who the Holy Spirit is, what the the Trinity is, and things of this nature. Not because the scriptures were not clear, but because uh, the church's teaching was increasingly challenged. Um, sometimes challenged by those within the church who wanted to solve uh, tensions, maybe uh, apparent tensions or paradox um, in those teachings, and then sometimes from without, as you had a lot of people who were interested in taking some Christian ideas and kind of melding them with the philosophy or the religiosity of the day. With this uh, church becoming legal and then favored, and then really, I think, Mike, it's fair to say, ascendant, um, you know, a force, a cultural force, societal force in its day, um, more challenges begin to enter. But you also have some who see the loss of martyrdom and persecution as a bad thing for the church, uh, as something that had helped keep the church healthy and, and Uh, kept people serious about their faith. And so you have with that a rise of monasticism, an impulse kind of now to have this second type of martyrdom, this asceticism. Uh, Asceticism just being ascetic uh, is something, denying yourself something. Um, An ascetic practice that many in the church still practice, even in Lutheranism, might be giving up something for Lent. Um, An ascetic practice isn't necessarily bad if it's focused rightly. Um, But this emphasis on asceticism or self-denial. And then also, as the Roman Empire is starting to, at least there's a sense that it's starting to crumble, maybe parallels to our own day where people kind of look at America or even to Europe and say it's not what it used to be as a global force. 
um, there was kind of this impending sense of a tumult or instability, uh, as and people, especially in the West, sought to find some stability and peace uh, in communities, monastic communities, especially early on for men. But maybe uh, <clears throat> if we can just step back then, and I'm talking too much, I'm excited to be back. Peter and I recorded for, I think, an hour and a half last night. Um, Peter drank all my Karlovaco, so I had to go get some more so that Mike could celebrate Croatia's second-place finish. As you know, I've uh, very wittily named the Croatian team the Flying Flations. I'm very proud of that, to have thought of that. And uh, and so we are in the backyard with some Karlovaco. And Mike, maybe if, if you want to just jump in with having read the Knoll chapter, um, I know we each kind of had our own, our own areas of interest. I did do as one of my minor fields late antiquity, not necessarily just monasticism, but I kind of like ages in history where it seems that society is maybe falling apart or unstable and seeing how the church reacts. But anything that stood out um, from Knoll's chapter for you? Yeah, well, just the title that monasticism is the rescue of the church, I thought was was a bold, bold title. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, my, my first uh, reflections upon that early that early impulse for monasticism, like Antony and then eventually uh, Benedict, is I totally get it. I totally get the you look at the church and uh, whenever you have something that is countercultural and then it becomes popular, it kind of loses something, doesn't it? And it can. Uh, <clears throat> In, in a superficial way, it kind of loses its um, appeal. But also, uh, when things start to become bureaucratic and it become institutionalized, things get bogged down. Um, and this is just any kind of, I mean, it could be the local Little League. You know, it was supposed to be fun, and now it's just a bunch of rules. And I whatever. remember a professor I had in college, he had a Mumford & Sons poster in his office. And then Mumford & Sons kind of got big. You know, about 2010 is when they started to blow up in uh I said, oh, nice Mumford and some poster. And he said, yeah, I don't like it anymore. He's <laughs> like, I had it up there when they weren't discovered yet. And now it just seems, you know, uh, like I'm jumping on the bandwagon. Right. So something that before had been its own thing, you know, seems less so. But go ahead. Sure. And, and not only that, but um, you can <laughs> very easily see being bogged down again with the bureaucracy and stuff like that. But you also look at people that are becoming Christian because it's the thing to do or because they were born into it or it's advantageous for them politically or economically. And rightfully, people can say that's not really what the heart of Christianity was. And so I totally get it. I totally get saying I want to get away from all of you and I want to get back to uh, scripture. I want to get back to the ideal when we were countercultural or um, uh, uh, when we were persecuted, right? Uh, Christianity is worth, is something worth dying for. And I say to my students now and my parishioners uh, before I became a professor that Christianity be, used to be something worth dying for, and now it's not even worth getting up on Sunday morning for, right? There, there is something there that there needs to be uh, an impulse in the other direction. But there's some fatal flaws, of course, with monasticism. Um, one is that it's not going to make you perfect, right? And so you have, you have, it's not, I don't want to say it is intrinsic to monasticism, but you could see very easily the tendency to mix law and gospel. Um, the other thing is a, a vocational 
a misunderstanding of vocation that the regular Christian on the street is somehow less spiritual. Uh, even from the beginning, I think those were impulses that were, you could see could be exploited and, and could be misused and, and would turn out poorly. And uh, uh, during the Reformation, of course, those were rightly um, criticisms of the monastic life. At the same time, you pull out monasticism from the history of the church. Boy, oh boy, you, you pull out, um, well, you're not going to have the same missionary zeal. You're not going to have schools and universities as we know them you're today. You're not going to have perhaps most of the manuscripts we have of the scriptures. Absolutely. We're, you're not going to have as much good beer. You're not going to have, I mean, you start thinking Many about... Many of the <laughs> villages of Europe you're not going to have because this monastic impulse was to continue to move out and, you know, cut down trees and dig wells and develop things. Now, this is going to come later, a lot of this, but... Sorry, I might keep going. Yeah, on. and I think uh, monasticism is, and so I think Noel's right uh, in very many ways, the, not just the rescue of the church, but really, in just an ironic way, push the church forward uh, in missionary um, zeal, first of all, but also you said uh, just studies, copying manuscripts, education, music, um, a lot of things. And, and we kind of get, monasticism gets a bad rap in Lutheranism, rightfully so in some criticisms, but it's not like they were all cloistered away praying and not doing anything for their neighbors. In fact, they were quite loving to their neighbors and did quite a bit. Um, and so we should, we should have a balanced view of monasticism. And it starts with understanding where it came from. And I think it was a reaction to, for lack of a better term, the imperial church when um, the church was, or the beginnings of the imperial era, I should say, when uh, the church was more favored and becoming more popular and there needed to be a correction. And, you know, it's jumping ahead a little bit in history, but I think you make a good point, Mike. If you do read our Lutheran confessions on monasticism, there are good things that they do have to say about some of the positives, especially in early monasticism. And Luther himself doesn't leave the monastery uh, right with the beginning of the <clears throat> Reformation. Um, there could be a reformational way to do monasticism. Uh, it just wouldn't be easy to do it and maintain the emphasis on sola fide and sola gratia. But I think you bring up a very good point that we, we do an injustice to the early monks and to monasticism and the role it played as a whole if we don't try to understand its context, its origins, and its original purposes. And, uh, you know, along those lines, this this idea of, of this impulse when you see the church becoming too institutionalized, too bureaucratic, too cultural or societal— um, Every age of the church has seen this, whether it be pietism's reaction to it, revivalism's reaction to it. Um, in many ways, right, Luther's Reformation itself was a reaction to it. Um, the last two episodes before the one Peter and I just recorded, you guys talked about Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer's reaction to it. Um, there is a, a healthy need for sometimes people to challenge the institutional church and to say, you know, you're becoming a little bit too comfortable. The problem is, as um, our in our Wisconsin Synod, uh, Mike and I both had Professor Deutschlander, Daniel Deutschlander, as he liked to warn, is to do so without falling into the other ditch, um, which can become an, an overemphasis of one's personal works or a reliance upon them. And I think, 
you know, if you may re- I say too, a, yep, go ahead. a negative theology of the cross, and we're not suffering enough, so I'm going to find suffering. You don't find crosses, they're laid before you, and so you don't say, well, I need to suffer now, so I'm going to do A, B, or C. That That's a it's a false, it's actually a false theology of glory, right? A neg- or a negative theology of It's a failure to live freely yeah. in a world given back yeah. to us. And, it, and it, it, as you mentioned, Mike, it undermines vocation then and the gratitude we ought to have for God's good gifts. Um, I joked with Peter in the last episode in, in Earmuffs, if we have children listening, but, you know, for all the good Augustine did, Augustine, kind of with his Neoplatonism and monastic emphasis, ruined sex for about 1,500 years in the church. And, and really... Um, contributed to an undervaluing of God's, um, you know, physical material gifts that he gives to people, whether that be food, drink, marriage, things of that nature. <clears throat> Maybe um, if you're okay with it, Mike, I could start just a little bit. My my main interest in late antiquity, and this is kind of, you know, as, as Rome is, is becoming a little bit more it's moved to Constant, you know, Constantine has moved the capital, Constantinople, and there's a real sense in the West and in North Africa that things aren't as um, stable as they used to be. But if we could start, I think it's best to start with Eastern monasticism, because even Benedict early on is going to try to live as a monk more in the Eastern tradition. And so if we could just briefly start with that, and what our listeners might find interesting, and, and this is not something I would read looking for a ton of um, spiritual counsel of how to deal with things, but very interesting and I think sometimes helpful if you're going to it for the right reasons are the sayings of the Desert Fathers. And what these are are collected sayings of the early ascetics who went out into the wilderness to live, and especially in Egypt. And these monks were what we would call eremitic, or they were hermit monks. Uh, you think of a hermit crab. Um, they went to live by themselves. There was some sense of community. You might have, um, you know, 50 monks within a mile radius, oftentimes in the mountains and caves, um, but they sought out definitely wilderness. Um, but they were not living together. They might gather for the divine service to receive the sacrament every once in a while, um, but it was a life lived alone. And the emphasis was on um self-denial, and then also oftentimes they would have a copy of the scriptures. And this is something you noted, Mike, and I think is important to note. There was an emphasis on the scriptures. Were they always reading them rightly? Well, I think we find among the early monks a real focus on the Sermon on the Mount, um, and a focus on the Sermon on the Mount that reads the Sermon on the Mount um, as, you know, what would be called evangelical councils, um, works of supererogation, things that you're going to go above and beyond and do if you're going to be an A-team Christian. Rather than reading the Sermon on the Mount and going, wait, I have to be perfect as my Father in Heaven is perfect. <clears throat> my righteousness has to surpass the scribes and Pharisees who are like super righteous. I need Christ, right? Reading it as things that could be fulfilled. Now, if you read the Desert Fathers, they struggled with, they realized they did, they needed God's grace. They fell short. As far as I know, they both had both their hands and both their eyeballs, though. They didn't pluck those out. And um, <laughs> maybe some did. Well, you know the joke about the one verse that Origen took literally as Jesus says, you know, whatever causes you to sin, cut it off. And Origen, uh, you know, some have said struggled with lust, and uh, and that's the one verse he took literally. But um, but they they were plucking themselves out from the community, so to speak. Um, this was definitely a conscious and a symbolic break with um, 
the community as a whole and with the institutional church. Now, they were still subject to bishops. Um, they would still go to divine service, you know, when they could and receive the sacrament. <clears throat> but there, this was a definite break. This was a renunciation. <clears throat> they were not, um, in contrast to the West, they were not leave, withdrawing in order to build up the church. I mean, they, they, they were hoping to build up the church with prayer, I would say. Um, but in the West, you have much more of a tradition of, you know, monks joining monasteries to then preach and to go minister and things of this nature. Um, this was, maybe you would say, a, a big emphasis on one's personal salvation. And here maybe is um, something akin to what we find in pietism and in revivalism and even in American evangelicalism, that in many ways my salvation comes down to right me and God, and I'm going to work this out, and I'm only going to listen to music that, you know, is on... <clears throat> I don't know, was it K-Rock or whatever? I don't know. And I'm only going to wear shirts that have Bible verses and I'm, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but Eastern monasticism was definitely withdraw and it's definitely to the wilderness. Um, and it's aromatic or, or it's hermit life. What develops though, and I, if I were to just, um, if you are someone, if you're a seminarian um, or you're someone who is doing work in history, theology, and you want to know what a good journal article should be, how to write a journal article, um, read uh, Peter Brown. You just absolutely need to read Peter Brown. Um, and what you need to read by Peter Brown is The Rise and Function of the Holy Man in Late Antiquity. Peter Brown, um, I would put Alec Reary up there too um, with his his journal article on um, the strange death of Lutheran England. But <clears throat> Peter Brown, The Rise and Function of the Holy Man in Late Antiquity is a model of what a journal article should be. And it's absolutely fascinating to me. Peter Brown has also written what I think is the best biography I've ever read, which is the biography of St. Augustine. I very highly recommend both. If you have access to JSTOR, you can get Brown's article for free. Um, the Augustine biography is not that expensive. You can get used copies uh, pretty affordably or get it probably from your local library. <clears throat> but um, what you have is in areas such as Syria and Palestine, these monks who withdrew... Um, you just couldn't withdraw as successfully. It had a different landscape. And so you were still accessible to people. And as you have the waning influence of the Roman government um, and the, uh, oh, not patriarchy, um, patrician class, the people, you know, these governments in many ways was wealthy landowners would kind of support those below them. <clears throat> um, many parts of the world still today, right? You have the, the wealthy who kind of will give gifts to them below to keep their allegiance. As that fades somewhat, um, the holy man becomes this guy who's viewed as being kind of detached from society. So you know what he can be? He can be an actually a pretty fair judge, right? He doesn't have a, a horse in the race. Oftentimes, too, these guys are pretty easy to find because they're unkempt and they're living in a strange place. Or even sometimes, you know, the Stylites, they're living on a pillar. You know, St. Simeon's on a pillar, if you need to find St. Simeon, he can't hide very well. He's uh, he's on a pillar. And if you have to describe to someone, oh, you and uh, your neighbor are fighting about your property lines, you should go see Simeon. Oh, where's Simeon? Oh, he's, he's, he's on a on pillar. <laughs> yeah, just go find him there. And uh, this is the monastic life more in the daily life of the people. And these are people then that uh, that, that um, the locals can go to for spiritual advice, that they can go to for... Um, what we would consider what you might go to a small claims court for. 
um, they become arbiters, and and in many ways too, they're seen as right where God is coming to meet man, um, because of you know concerns with demons and the holy man has things that he can do with that. And that's kind of a segue to <clears throat> what monasticism will be in the West. But I'm going to stop there, Mike, because I'm talking too much. Anything you have so far? Well, I think it's very interesting that you, you bring that more of a political and cultural thing up right now because <clears throat> um, even even then there's political concerns. And very much so. uh, when you talk about the—we always talk about the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire and the, the political scene that's going on in the whole Mediterranean world, East and West, and, and all this kind of stuff— and Christianity grows up in that, and you can't divorce it. So our next episode in the Swinging series will be um, the coronation of, of Charlemagne by Leo. And um, there, there is a, there's political things going on there. Um, instead of looking to the east, um, uh, where there is the now uh, the, the the Eastern Church is a little bit weakened. You have the um, you have Muslims becoming huge um, in North Africa and in the East, of course, and then of course Not like into Spain. literally in physical size, but <laughs> uh, the, territorial size yeah. and influence. That it made sense for the Italian Pope to make nice with the uh, the the Frankish the Franks, right? And and the and the kings up there, and, and it happens before Charlemagne, of course. Um, and so, th- there's no such thing as this pure age where the Church was somewhat divorced of of political ramblings and maybe that's one of the impulses of those early uh, uh monastics and they get pulled right in um they can't they can't you can try to get away from the world but you can't but you can't and i think that's where luther was so wise when he when he when he took to the monastics the the idea of vocation and that that's that for me is the biggest issue um you can be Technically, you can be a monk and get law and gospel. I think it's more difficult. I think you have some hurdles that you have to get over just because of the way things are set up. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have your theology wrong. Um, but vocation becomes very, very difficult to really understand. You, can, I suppose you could do it, but it becomes very difficult to understand. And, and the idea, again, of, of um, I'm, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer all of these people who have become materialistic. And so I'm going to go suffer over there. You're choosing your cross in that way. And the cross will find you no matter what. And so those are kind of my thoughts, but you should keep going. And I mean, many of the early fathers in the East really found this as well too, that eventually they realized, you know, they, they fled the city to flee sin and they brought sin with them. And this is where some of the sayings of the early desert fathers are really good. You know, I, I have one that I just love and I've used in sermons of, um, there's going to be this trial of this uh, fellow, you know, hermit who had apparently sinned, and so the the real elder hermit that everybody respects takes a uh, a bag of sand or grain or something, who knows, and he uh, just lets it. Um, he has a hole in it so that it kind of just drains out as he walks, and uh, they say, "Well, what are you doing?" And he said, "Oh, those are all my sins. I'm leaving them behind so I can forget them to judge my brother." <laughs> And what he there's some long gospel there, right? What he gets is that all of us who think we have time to become consumed with, in this case, what might have been for all we know a rather you know tangential sort of sin, um, our sins, you know, in the time in the desert ought to become larger in our view, not smaller. <clears throat> and I think there is some wisdom to be gained in a life of solitude like that. Um, the danger is, as Mike is hinting at, or well, not hinting at, but saying is. 
you're removing yourself from the ability to be a mask of God to then serve others, right? There's, and I think we see the same impetus in our own day when sanctification is inclined to become something selfish, as we've talked about on the show, where sanctification merely becomes about my spiritual growth and less about me being a channel of God for my neighbor. You know, this is, in essence, the monastic impulse at work again. Um, and when the emphasis becomes on um, human effort and sanctification, not that there's not human effort, right? The law does command things. But when the emphasis becomes upon what the human being is doing, rather than seeing the hand of God behind what the human being is doing, um, that same monastic danger exists. Yeah, sanctification for the sake of sanctification. And, uh, you know, even culturally in America, we still have that impulse too on both the left and the right. If get political just for a second, I think. There's I was an, about to go there too, so yeah, I'm going to see if I can remember to follow up. An, there's an impulse to, and I get it, you know, you just want to get away from the city. You want to go live in the mountains, right? You want to get away from the government. You want to do all this. You want to, uh, to me, for me personally, it's, I just want to give up all of this stuff and just go live a simple life, you know, but it's really a turned inward kind of thing. On the left, you constantly hear people, well, so-and-so got elected. Now I'm moving to Canada, right? You know, you just kind of want to give up and go. You're looking for this pure sanctified, pious, and maybe what you think an easier, simpler life in some other region, but you just can't physically escape that very often. Um, uh, the realities of the world will always follow you because you are in the world. And this is where, you know, many of these early hermits were supported by um, the Christian community in the cities who would, you know, make the trek out to leave um, resources for them to survive on. Oftentimes these hermits would weave baskets or things that they could do in the wilderness to support themselves. But there was the impulse in there too, right? What was the comfort for the institutional church? Um, there was some comfort to knowing there were true believers out there <clears throat> who were, um, you know, living the Sermon of the Mount out. And what does that do? In many ways it... Um, I become a second-class Christian, right? I can take comfort that someone's taking this seriously. Why? Because I'm not. Well, in reality, I'm actually taking it pretty seriously when I think I need someone else to take it seriously because I realize I'm falling short of that goal. And I think politically, and this is where Brown's article is so good, we see that in our own day too, with the inclination to demagogue or to have, um, I think in in every party now, kind of um, a... uh, you know, an A team, an all-star team, a super squad that is, is going to virtue signal, that is going to be, you know, whether it be a, a Bernie who is the, you know, the purity on the left. Um, I don't know who the purity on the right is. It depends who you ask. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, I, I, Reagan, yeah. but, you know, he's been and long the, gone. Know, that could well be. But this idea of this, you know, this person who is the ideal of this way of thought. And I think, you know, maybe Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand or, or whatever for for that. But um, it's just a natural human thing. Maybe if we can take it to the West a bit and then we'll get to uh, Benedict. But I would say most of our listeners, when you hear of monasticism, you are thinking of monasticism in the West. Um, and monasticism then as defined by Benedict of Nursia. And so now we're, we're going to make our way to Italy. And Benedict is We've left Egypt, then we've left later Syria and Palestine. <clears throat> but Benedict is going to be influenced by this early monasticism, uh, as later will be, you know, the two great church fathers um, for the West from this age are going to be Augustine and Jerome, who both have this monastic impulse, right? Jerome especially. So, 
But uh, we'll make our way to the West. And Benedict is influenced by Eastern monasticism. <coughs> Excuse me. And at first is going to live as a hermit. And he lives as a hermit for quite a while. And we have these monks then who say, we want you to come help us found a monastery. And this will be a, a very important thing because this will be what we can call. And people can, you know, um, I hate pronouncing Latin because someone always criticizes me. So, you know, feel free to send your criticisms to uh, Wade doesn't care at letthebirdfly.com. But Chenobitic, Cenobitic, um, this is communal monasticism. And it doesn't go so well, they try to poison him. They don't quite li like how he runs things. And so one of the symbols for Benedict is a raven. They apparently tried to poison him with bread, and this raven came and uh, took the poison bread. And I don't know where it took it. Like, maybe it dropped it in a field and some peasant ate it. Or, <laughs> you know. It's a raven, like, die. Is it the raven a type of Christ? Yeah, no one dies ever, I don't think they really tell you what happens after that. Um, but it's a rough start for Benedict. But what this will be, and there, there had been, I mean, Benedict's not the only one doing this, but the beginning of the monastery as a thing where a group, especially of men here early on, <coughs> um, are going to live together a communal life dedicated around the study of Scripture, but also living what we might call evangelical councils, as the term is later used, trying to live out the Sermon on the Mount, um, but together. And... Uh, Oftentimes, right, withdrawn to an extent, this is a community, but a community that in many cases is also still going to go out into the world, whether it be with works of mercy or with preaching or whatever the case might be. This becomes extremely important because one of the tax, tasks that these monks will take on over time is to have a scriptorium where they are going to copy the scriptures and important um, early church documents. There's no printing press, um, but they have the idea especially if you, as you have more monks who want to read the scriptures. So before we bash the monks too much, we ought to remember the demand for the scriptures was coming from the institutional church, but then also from monks. Um, <clears throat> these monasteries have libraries. Um, and, I mean, this is just huge that you're going to have all these libraries in um, Western Europe and North Africa as well. And uh, to copy these early manuscripts and to do so with just amazing care. Mike, both of you and I have have gone through enough study and, and, and prepping to be pastors that we know, you know, you get the Nestle Allen or, um, you know, the USB and you look at it and these variants are so insignificant in most instances. Just the care that they took to copy these, man, I look back at my notes and I'll be like, I know my professor didn't say that. Like, this was five minutes into class and I was already tuned out. Um, the care and the focus and the resources that were put into this um, becomes just paramount for the West and the survival of, um, you know, the foundational documents of the Christian church. I'll leave off there, Mike, if you've got anything. There. No, I, I think that's very important for us because especially for Lutherans, when we leave, read Luther and he rails on the monastics, it's really shorthand for monastics who do not understand law and gospel. And we need to understand that, again, what a great gift to the church they left behind, not just with the manuscripts, but the mission work that they did um, and uh, the acts of mercy and tilling the fields and digging the wells. I mean, they literally did really hard work for their neighbors. And, it, you know, I, I kind of uh, was cranking on them for vocation, and yet they fulfilled quite a few vocations yeah. you know um it's it, it, it's just a it's a mixed bag and, and and i think about how 
when God works in history, there are often things that he brings about that are a mixed bag and that we, with uh, the, the hindsight of history, um, can rightly criticize, but to understand that that may have been the right time for that. I, capitalism comes to mind, too. Capitalism is, um, has problems. It has problems. We can't, it, you know, this is not something that is uh, that we can just say is perfect. And yet certainly it has been used for good, right? So I can see monasticism where some of the impulses are, boy, I, I am critical of them, rightfully so. I can totally understand it, but I can also see how God used it for such great good, such great good. And we would not be where we are. Not just as Christians as a whole, but specifically as Lutherans, as, as uh, all, all, all denominations, we owe them a great debt of gratitude for what they preserved for us and what they did. Um, it doesn't mean that we can't criticize them, but just to, just to be kind of fair historically about them, I think is very important. And, uh, and Benedict, of course, is one of the, um, the leading giants in that in that whole movement and maybe we'll kick it to you since you know more about the rule than I do. And Mike, where are we at time wise? Just so I know we got, we got, we got a few minutes. We got 32 minutes in okay, so far. Well, good. Um, I don't want to belabor the rule of St. Benedict, but maybe if we can just hit on why it's important because it really becomes a pattern for subsequent rules in Western monasticism. And what we mean by a rule is simply, um, if we might think of, um, when you belong to an organization, it's bylaws, or maybe a, a manual, um, not manual, 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 <laughs> manual. And uh, we've, we, you know, we've got a number of people who are going to grow together, live together. We have to have a handbook, as it's called at the college. How are we going to carry ourselves? How are we going to behave? Who's going to be in charge? What's going to be the repercussions? And I've taught, um, when I taught Western Civ, um, in grad school, I used to teach this, the rule of St. Benedict, and I would always, you know, joke, and what's the punishment for this? And the students would say, severe beatings. <laughs> and uh, Because that does come in a few times, and I always think it's quite humorous. You know, the abbot is to administer these severe beatings, and it's like a 70-year-old guy, and he's beating a novice who's like a 15-year-old kid. Who could, It reminds me of just football when you see football and, like, the old coach grabs, like, the— 250 pound six foot four lineman by the helmet and starts yelling at him and if that lineman wanted to he could just decimate the coach. Lou Holtz comes to mind. <laughs> yeah and um, but some of the the foci or, or the the things that the focuses of this um, I would say if, a, if one word comes to mind it would be obedience the idea that you're going to submit yourself to the abbot and so one of the things that stands out to me is you know if the abbot commands something impossible go try it and if it's impossible tell the abbot but if he says to keep doing it then keep trying um and this is where i think we see in the roots of western monasticism for all the good it does um the law focus that will follow <clears throat> now obedience is not a bad thing as lutherans were big fans of the obedience of faith right but rooted in this obedience is the idea of progress. You are going to advance in this. <clears throat> You're going to advance in your um, spirituality, your faith, whatever the case may be. And there are advancements that can be, progress that can be made, but we know that that is the, the gift of God and that comes through the proclamation of the gospel. 
As far as a rule, though, we need to remember, too, that th- these are rules that are meant to govern commun- communities that are oftentimes going to be started in very um, rural or um, incidental sort of places. Um, this is not an easy life. Um, Mike mentioned, you know, the importance of monasticism for the spread of civilization. Um, many early vidges, villages were started by monastics. And so you need to keep good order. If you were to look at the handbook for our college, I don't think many people would find in that handbook a predomination of the gospel. Right? This is, um, and naturally so. These are rules, you know, if, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some of the rules. I'm assuming, like, you know, you can't murder or whatever I don't, <clears throat> I don't think that's explicit but yeah you're not supposed to murder <laughs> but there's rules like i don't know don't i can't why can't i think of college rules don't drink in the dorms don't plagiarize don't don't um don't watch pornography don't uh run a gambling ring i don't know no human trafficking i don't know, I don't know. but um Right. Why do you need to have the rules? Because you have to keep order for people living together. And if conflicts arise, you need to be able to say this as the standard by which we're going to judge this situation. So we don't want to be unfair to the rule of St. Benedict um, in that you do have to govern people when people are gathered together. Um, but I would say obedience and humility are going to be the two things that stand out above all. Um, but this rule becomes so important because then each monastic order, a gathering of monks, and you know, we might think uh, Dominicans, Franciscans, Jesuits, Capuchins, things of this nature, are each going to eventually have their own rule and order, which will, Rome will then validate. Um, and St. Francis is a, a fun one when we get to it. Uh, St. Francis is one of my, my all-time favorite saints because, you know, he wants to go convert the Muslims, and he goes and he challenges the imams that, well, let's just both throw ourselves in the fire and see what's, what, you know, who's right and um, the ruler, the sultan, whoever at the time says, uh, yeah, how about you guys not do that? <laughs> you know, um, but uh, but this is going to be a structured life together. And what this really is going to set the precedent for is going to be a monasticism that is involved in the broader community, um, that is going to be involved in society as a whole, but that is also at the same time going to be extremely structured um, and focused on obedience and humility, which will become central to almost any monastic order together with poverty. Um, but I would say once again, one of the things that becomes important that, that Benedict and others will emphasize is going to be this uh, this emphasis on prayer and learning. Um, you know, we can think of oratio um, and laboria, prayer and work, the idea that it's good to be working um, with your hands, uh, which I think is both of those are good things um, that's going to influence later monasticism. But what it's going to do is to set Western monasticism apart from the trajectory that Eastern monasticism takes. If you watch, uh, go on YouTube and, and you know, um, not Google, <clears throat> what do you call a YouTube search? Search for Mount Athos or something in, in, in Greece. This is a very different type of monasticism that's being lived out. Um, and, uh, and so Western monasticism will be marked by its involvement in the church. And in many ways then, monasticism will exemplify the best of what the church wants to be. Um, it is going to represent the, you know, the, um, the purity of the church, the, the virginity, the celibacy of the church, um, the uh, observation of, of Christ's most stern commands. But in that is going to be, again, then this notion that these things are achievable. And I know people hear that and they say, well, Johnson's saying we can't keep God's commands. No, I'm just saying, like, sometimes Jesus said stuff to make the point that, right, you're not going to be able... When Jesus says, 
you know, it's been said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if anyone looks at it, another lustfully, his whole point is like, this is not as easy as you think. When it's been said, do not murder, I say, do not be angry at your brother. Well, his whole point is like, yeah, here you thought you were killing the fifth commandment. But, you know, well, that's kind of pun killing. intended. Yeah. But you're not doing nearly as great as you uh, as you thought. But many of the reforms that will come later in monasticism will be to try to fall more in line with this early ideal, which is really exemplified by um, by Benedict's rule. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to belabor, but, Mike, anything else just on the role or importance of monasticism as it develops? No, I think it, it's, again, to be fair, you know, it, it did bring a, about a lot of good things. Um, but and missionary, uh, yeah, the mission of, impulse is extremely important for... Th- this does take, um, whether it's the pure gospel, this does take the Christian message um, into all sorts of frontier places. Absolutely, and to, to Northern Europe and, uh, and, and beyond, really. Um, and so getting back to kind of the trajectory of history here, you know, you come from a, a, a church of, of Constantine, let's just say, and you have uh, maybe a materialism that kind of uh, comes out into the early parts of the imperial church. And um, then you have this reaction, which is kind of the Eastern monasticism, and eventually it develops into something that's a little bit more ordered. Okay, we want to do this. We want to do this right. And so let's have groups that go out there. It wasn't just a more of an individual kind of thing, like maybe Antony or, or some of the other early uh, desert fathers. Um, but then we're eventually going to start getting into how monasticism really is, runs parallel then with kind of the bishops, and uh, that, that kind of really forms what we know as the medieval church. And so it's really important to understand uh, the culture of the church, but also the politics of the church in these centuries, uh, as then eventually we lead up to the Great Schism and then, and then the, Reformation, the Reformation too. Um, you know, and maybe an earlier point that you talked about how it was so nice to think about somebody who is serious about Christianity that made me feel warm and fuzzy inside. I'm sure you felt that a little bit more growing up Roman Catholic than I did, but we, we get that as Lutheran pastors too. Oh, is it so nice that, 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 uh, um, Gertrude's grandson is going to seminary, yeah. right? You know, and, and I think even it, and this is, um, I, I love our high schools and our prep schools. But, you know, while we want to encourage people to consider being called workers, we can sometimes give the impression of... They'll oh, do the work. Yeah, the um, this is... It's kind of disappointing if you don't, yeah. rather than, thank God we're sending out these lay people who are really equipped to be great, you know, right. um, members of a congregation. Right, and so you do see... Uh, you can see the beginnings of a clerical caste, you know, and a, a different class out there, and that becomes a medieval society, right? It's a whole different class. Um, we wouldn't think of of ministers or priests or religious people in America as a different class, right? We judge ourselves. Usually if we're going to talk about classes, it's going to be uh, in economic terms. Um, but this really does affect society um, and the church for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until it comes to a head in the Reformation. So it's really good to understand it and to look at it fairly, this uh, this monastic outgrowth uh, early in the East, but then, you know, with Benedict and, and then eventually the Augustinians and the Dominicans. And I think you bring up some good points, Mike, and maybe one, the idea that those in power will try to harness this and, and rather successfully. So, right, the monks will become great, um, you know, troops, so to speak, for the papacy, 
and in the East for the for the patriarchs as well. These are people who are willing to go great distances and do great things um, to their good, um, but also, you know, uh, the idea that this can be used for public opinion as well. And maybe a good American example that I know Dr. Brown brought up in a, an earlier episode, um, when we were talking about Billy Graham, Right, is for all the good Billy Graham did religiously, he also was used for political purposes, especially, you know, to counter communism. Um, so this is something that those in power will see as valuable to harness. And then I think just to go back to Luther again, what I think the biggest distinction we're going to see as the impulse here then is to keep God's commands you withdraw from the world. And the Reformation will turn that on its head and say, how in the world can you keep God's commands if you don't go into it because that's where your neighbor is. And so that's not to say all these early monks have that view, but we see the seeds being laid, or what do you call that, sown, um, for what will later become the great, you know, turning on its head of Luther's Reformation. So maybe with that, unless you have something else, Mike, we can wind it up there. And as we uh, appreciate all that the early monks did and the development of monasticism, we can also be thankful um, wherever we live, whatever our vocations are, uh, to be able to enjoy in Christian freedom, uh, confident of God's grace, to let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drinker. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. One more round won't get me down. I said, honey, honey, I don't care what